0: In the, in the mid-1640s in, in England, uh, during the Civil Wars, Oliver Cromwell led uh, armies, Puritan armies, against the roundheads, they were called, I believe, against um, the king and his armies, and they were victorious. And he was an amazing general, a great military leader, and he took shepherds, fishermen, I'm quoting now, small shopkeepers and farmers and made them into a great army a victorious fighting force that swept the king's armies before it. Now, word got over to France, of course, of what Cromwell was doing, and, one, and a French general uh, got permission to come over to, to inspect, just to walk among the troops and inspect the army and see what was their secret sauce. And he did so, and what he found astonished him. And, and what he found was men in camps, Uh, praying, holding prayer meetings all over the place. And this general, this French general, went to Cromwell, and he said, he he conveyed his amazement. He said, and again, I'm quoting, why are you allowing or even encouraging all these prayer meetings of the troops? Cromwell answered him without, without even having to think. He said, sir, I've learned that those who pray best fight best. Now, I'm, I'm quoting from and I'm stealing the opening illustration from uh, my mentor's wonderful commentary, uh, which is a collection of 65 or 66 sermons on the book of Revelation, on this text here, Revelation 8, which is where we are. And I'm stealing it because it's just such a superb way of encapsulating this, the, truth, the the prominent truth in this chapter, in Revelation 8, which is full of trumpets being blown in judgment being poured out on the earth through the angels by God Almighty. And uh, you might think this is about judgment. You may think it's um, a terrible passage. And by terrible, I mean one that one that is full of terror, of, of judgments being poured out on the earth. And indeed it is, ostensibly. Uh, and we'll read about those in a second as I read the text. But... But really, it's 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 behind the scenes, what's moving the hand of God through the work of Jesus Christ, um, is is the prayers of the saints, and that's really sort of the 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 background of the text that gives the power to the text. And really, if I can say this, and I will, and I'll say it throughout this little sermonette here, that gives um, that gives movement and shape to history because of the finished work of Christ, the prayers of the saints move. The hand of God and move history, and so I'm going to read the text now, and um, and by the way, that, that commentator is Doug Douglas F. Kelly. If you're interested in his, um, to my mind, superb collection of sermons on the Book of Revelation uh, by Christian Focus. Okay, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, so we've come from uh, Christ's victory, and then He opens. Um, God's perfectly seven sealed uh, book his his plan for all of history moving forward. And because of what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection, it, history can move forward and we get the seals that are opened. And in this final um, in this in this chapter, we get the final seal that's opened. OK, and notice who's opening it. I'll return to this. But when the lamb opened the seventh seal and out of these seals, you're going to get the trumpets. And we'll talk about that. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So here are the trumpets, right? You have seven seals and now you have seven trumpets. And then from those trumpets, you'll have seven bowls and then you'll have the end of Revelation. So that's the core of Revelation is three sevens. It's seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bowls. And I'll I'll talk about those briefly. Um, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, sort of like a bowl. And he was given much incense, okay, there's incense in the censer, okay, to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So it's already, it's already terrifying, right? Okay, now here are the seven trumpets proper. We'll get to four of them in this chapter. Now the seven angels who have the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, so the angels are blowing the trumpets here's we're gonna get one two three four four angels right and four trumpets the first angel blew his trumpet and what happens and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up the second angel angel number two blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the, and on the springs of water. Now as I as you hear these, ask yourself this question, I'm going to turn to this in my context. Um does this sound literal or, or figurative? And I don't mean fake, this is all real, but does this sound symbolic or does it sound uh non symbolic? The name of the star is, so it turned, let's see, the star fell, turning a third of the rivers, fell on a third of the rivers and on springs of water. Verse 11, the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had become bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, and it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, which means cursed. Woe, three woes. To those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So get ready. In other words, even worse things are coming. Okay. Now, I'm not going to answer all your questions in this short sermon here, um, but hopefully I can give you the gist of what's going on, in, in my opinion, Okay. Revelation is not an easy book. It's a rich book. It's a wonderful book, and it's the final book in the canon for a reason. So, first, first things, um, give you a bit more of a framework here. I, I believe that Revelation is symbolic, and that it's, and to answer the question I, I asked in the middle of the text reading, and it's recapitulative. Okay, so I believe it's symbolic. So, what what do I mean by that? Well, that, that lots of the things in Revelation are symbols. This is apocalyptic, ancient apocalyptic literature, which was. The genre itself is highly symbolic, so not to read it so would actually not to be to read it as it was meant to be written. To read it literally um, without interpreting the symbols as such is actually not a responsible way to read this genre. And then when you just look at you know, the way things are, when, if these things actually happened, um, there wouldn't be a third of anything left. If a star fell to Earth, if a third of the sun goes dark, we would all die. Okay. Not only that, but these things happen over and over again in the book of Revelation. There are lots of connections between them. It seems like John's repeating himself, uh, not verbatim, but but sort of layering things. There are lots of connections between the, the three sevens, between the, as I said earlier, the seals, followed by the trumpets, followed by the bowls. There's lots of – what it seems like John's doing, and this makes sense of the way he likes to use the number seven and of uh, lots of other – the way the ancient um, – apocalyptic literature often was, and of, and of uh, the way that John likes to write, is that he seems to be saying the same thing multiple times. Namely, the way that I interpret the book more largely, and, and there's some flex here I could be not dead on, but I follow a man named um, William Hendrickson, who wrote a book right before the Second World War, uh, well, went as it broke out, 1939. I believe it was the first edition. And he shows, he makes a case for the fact that now it's, it's fairly standard consensus that revelation is re- recapitulative, that it recapitulates, that it's it repeats uh, with increasing intensity each time. So it's not chronological, it's not just one storyline. And then a third of these things happen and the third of these things are destroyed. And then another third, and then another third, but rather that he's, he's saying that, He's covering the same ground each time and giving us different details and each time giving us more detail, perhaps, and, and, it, and it, the, the intensity is being ratcheted up. But he's covering seven times the same period of time throughout the book. So that's what Hendrickson says. John loves the number seven. He uses it all over the place. I, I, the number I, escapes me. Maybe, I think it's maybe 54 times he uses the number seven. And then also, again, remember, it's the last book of the Bible. What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. Is there a seven in Genesis, a prominent seven? Of course. There's a sense in which revelation is about the recreation of all things through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. He's the first fruit of a new creation. Well, Genesis is about creation. And then what proceeds out of that? Well, Genesis starts with seven things, six days, seven days, six days of creation and the resting on the seventh, which completes creation. And so, uh it would make sense that revelation speaking to Genesis, speaking back to Genesis and out over all of world history and over the entire scripture as a, as a frame as the the last part of the frame that helps frame the Bible along with Genesis would also be divided into seven things. And so Henderson makes that case. And and to my mind, he makes it if not conclusively well. And, um, he shows that the time period that is the John is speaking of, um, is the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the time period that Revelation, it makes, helps make sense of the fact that, I mean, how many times can a third of the stars fall from the sky? Not only is that symbolic, but also, and it's, it means that things are being destroyed, that havoc is being wreaked, yes, but not necessarily that actual stars, a third of them are falling from the actual sky, and that actually a third of the sun is being wasted away or darkened. It's, it's, it's things that speak of judgment, okay? It's themes that speak of God's judgment to bring sinners to himself, to vindicate the saints, to move history forward, and so on. Um, but, you know, how many times can the third of the stars fall from the sky? Well, when it happens three times, then there's nothing left, right? I think of the nothing eating the never-ending story world in that movie and book. Um, so, so the details of the text also suggest that the same thing is being said here over and over and over again in different ways. And then when you read it all together in the book of Revelation, that seems to be the case as well. John is seven times uh, throughout the book. The first time is chapters one through three. Um, speaking of the next time, I believe it's chapters four through seven. And then here, chapter eight through maybe 11 is the third time that he's saying, hey, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, I'm giving you basically from the time John is writing this book all the way until the end, until Christ returns, and finishes the process of making all things new that's the time period revelation covers and it majors on all this sense would have made all these things would have made sense to John's audience It majors on the end of the first century early early church history but then it extends out until Christ returns and then the end of the book is him coming back and finishing his judgment and finishing his salvation bringing his saints to himself ending evil, ending Satan ending. Uh, putting, putting those who have rejected him with Satan and his, and his demons, his fallen angels and sealing them up and over, sending them to hell and then coming, uh, bringing heaven down to earth and reigning here. Um, and so this, what we're looking at here is, um, our point is it's symbolic and then it's also, um, just a recapitulation, and we'll see that over and over again uh, with the bulls especially, okay? So so that's just a bit of context here. Now, for some points, okay, for some points, that's sort of context. What do we see here? We see a lot of destruction, but I want to move, I want to sort of move your, and now, let me let me say this: the destruction that we see, it's not, don't think about it as some future time. If, if you think about it as, as some future time, I want to submit to you that you have a poor, I'm just going to say, I think you have a wrong and an impoverished theology of the book of Revelation. The end times are very clearly were told in the scriptures, in the New Testament, especially, and in Peter's sermon, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, he makes it very clear. There's no question that the end times, the last days, uh, began with the second coming of Christ, and, and especially with his ascension and his pouring out of his spirit to his church at Pentecost. That was the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, and Peter makes that very clear, in these last days. The last days are, the time I just said was repeated seven times in the book of Revelation, the time that Revelation gives us sevenfold, and that is the time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, the last days. This is the last the last big thing that happens in world history. The next big thing is going to be the return of Christ. So that's what Revelation chapter 8 that I just read is, that's the time period it's giving us. And if you've read history, you understand that... All this disaster, isn't these hardships, this destruction, it's not for some future date. It's not something that the church is going to be whisked out of. The tribulation is now, and the end times are now, the last days. And the past 2,000 years have shown us this. Jesus said, you know, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He was crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. 11 of his 12, everybody except John. Was, uh, was martyred for their testimony of, of the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead and was the king. Um, the church has been persecuted for 2,000 years, and wherever it's persecuted, that's normal, and it grows. And we've, in the West, been accepted from that, and that's been, that's been odd, we've been the oddball, the bubble boy of history. History, if you just read secular history, of, history is a history of wars and of death the 20th century is no exception. In fact, it's been worse than any, I think more, I've read something somewhere that more people have died in the 20th century than all other centuries in world history combined, like by orders of magnitude. So, you know, this looks this this chapter reads a lot like a reading of 20th century history. Um, okay, so that's that. But I don't want you to think of this chapter just as destruction. I want you to think of this chapter as Three points, okay. One, the first point is this: God. Think about it as God sovereignly administering His will through the person of Jesus Christ, His His Son, who came and lived with us and now reigns through His Church. He is moving forward world history in large part through judgment, but judgment isn't pointless. It's to bring it. First of all, it passes. God is sovereign. He's the King. He's orchestrating all this. This disaster. It's not just like, oh, no, havoc is happening. There's no point to history. No, it's passing. It's ordained by God. It's coming from his hand. It's coming through his hands. What do I mean by that? It's coming through the nail-scarred hands of Christ. What do we read? If you're paying attention in verse 1, the first verse, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. Everything, it meant, again, remember Revelation chapter 5. It's because of the victory of the Lamb at his cross, vindicated by his resurrection. He proved his victory uh, at the cross through his resurrection and ascension. It's because of that victory that he is given the ability, that he is found worthy as a man, representing us, anyone who comes to him, to to set world history in motion and to accomplish God's perfect plan, to open the seven-sealed book. And that's really the rest of Revelation. It's one of those, the opening those seals, the blowing of those trumpets, the pouring out of those bowls. Again, it's the same thing happening. In different told in different ways. It's a turning of a diamond. You see the different facets through through the seals and then the trumpets and the bowls. It's all passing through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's passing through his nail scarred hands. It's the Lamb that's opening the seals and setting off the trumpets. And setting off the pouring of the bowls. It's the Lamb. It's the Lamb who gave Himself forth. So there's there's purpose in all these disasters. They're to bring sinners to repentance, and it's to vindicate the saints. And that's the second thing that I'll say. The second point of this little sermonette is not only that God is sovereignly administering history through the nail-scarred hands of his son Jesus, that nothing happens that doesn't pass through those hands, but also that there's power in prayer. And that's the the reason I I started out uh, with that illustration of, of Cromwell. Sir, I've learned that those who pray best fight best. Because what, I mean, one of the motherlode messages of this this chapter, of this wonderful chapter that at first seems gory and burdensome, but when we understand what John is conveying about world history really is hopeful. And that is that behind all this and the mechanism pulling the levers of world history are the prayers of the saints. What what does it say here in chapter 8? It says, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And what does he do? He takes that and he scatters it down on earth and then all these things happen. All these things that are happening are happening through the prayers of the saints that are arising to God through the work of Jesus Christ as incense. Somebody, um, he was the he was a secretary for the right hand man. Uh, you know what? Who the Robert E. Lee in the, in the American War between the States, the Civil War, the Southern General, um, the General for the Southern States. He called Stonewall Jackson his right arm. And When he found out Jackson had died, he said, "He said I've lost my right arm." Uh, the secretary for Jackson for for a period was um, was a man who was a pastor and a theologian, and his name was. Um, Sorry, I'm, I was daydreaming about something. It was Robert L. Dabney. He was a Southern Presbyterian theologian, pastor, writer, and uh, he served as chief of staff. I think I said secretary for a while for, for Jackson. And he had a close-up on him. And either way, he, um, he records that, he records that, uh, I mean, Jack, Jackson certainly, I read, I read a biography on him recently called Rebel Yell by S.C. Glenn. He's a journalist and um, historian in Texas here. Wonderful writer, and and that's a great book. Uh, but he was certainly in the middle. Of sort of in 1863, Jackson was mown down, was shot accidentally in the forest by his own men, and that was that was a, a tragedy for the South. Um, God used it. Um, he was a godly man. He was a dedicated Presbyterian, a Sovereignist, believed in the guided the guided bullet and all things. He stood up straight. He sat up straight in the saddle because he believed that. He was as safe in the saddle as he was in his bed because because that when it was his time to go, uh, whether in bed or on the battlefield, God would take him and not until then. And so so that made him a lion in life. And um, anyway, he he was shot by his own men and um, they there was a he was buried in state and. The doors were being shut on his open casket, and there were many, many, many thousands of of his soldiers there to pay respects. And and as the doors were shut, apparently one one old soldier lifted up the stump of his right arm and said, with this right arm, which I lost for my country, I demand the privilege of seeing the general under whom I fought one more time. And so the governor of Virginia said, open again the doors. Let this one man go in. He's won entrance by his wounds that he suffered for the Confederacy. And again, I'm taking this from Doug Kelly, but he says it is something like that when we pray. The wounds of Christ for sinners win us access to the immediate power and grace, love and mercy of God. So the, the wounds of Christ, not our virtue, but his and his being wounded for sinners like us, open the doors of access to God almighty who pulls the levers of the universe, who made all things and directs all things his wounds, Jesus's wounds for us for sinners open access to God and and the and prayers prayers rise like incense to God through the merit and the person of Jesus Christ and his work and they move the hand of God and they move history forward and that's one of the big that's one of the big messages that God that God that John is sending here in Revelation 8 um, that these, these uh, trumpets that are being blown, that are having real effects in the physical world on earth, are passing, G, the lamb is the one that is opening these seals and that is causing these trumpets to be blown. And through his work, the prayers of the saints are being offered. And because of his work, they're effective. In, in, in causing these things to happen and, and to be directed. So um, prayer is the work. And, and that's one of the big messages of of, the, uh, of this chapter here. There is so much power in prayer. It's not preparation for the work. It is, it is the work. And um, I've heard it said that history belongs to the intercessors. And there's so many stories. Uh, Doug, Doug says prayer is like a highway. Between the physical world and the unseen, and that's really the last, the final point uh, here, along with God's uh, God's sovereignty through Christ that is so clearly seen, um, worked out so that, that that sinners would repent through these terrors and come to know Him, and that's really a large a large sort of dynamic in the in the the history of the past two thousand years is that God's allowing these things and um, so that. Sinners would come to Jesus Christ. It's in the press a lot of times that the church grows. Almost always, there's a reason right now that the churches in Ukraine are full. Um, it's in the press, and so these things that God allows, He's using. He's using them to bring people to Christ, and He's also using the prayers of the saints. That's the second point: is that the the power of prayer it moves the hand of history forward through the through the work of Christ, who sovereignly administers all things. And then and then finally, um, just the connection between heaven and earth, prayer. We see a bunch of things here. There are a bunch of dichotomies and dualities in the book of Revelation. One of them is heaven and earth. And what's happening is that the saints praying on earth are are rising to heaven and causing God to act in certain ways um, from heaven. And so prayer really connects heaven to earth. Um, We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and by his spirit, he is with us here on earth and prayer reminds us of those realities and it connects those two realities. You know, what is, what is the headline of, of the Lord's prayer of the model prayer that the Lord prays when his disciples are like, he just had to pray. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, bringing heaven down. That's what prayer does. It plunders to use sort of Martin Luther language. Prayer is a, is a hand that reaches up to heaven and plunders the riches therein through the merits of Jesus Christ and brings them down to earth. And it's a highway that, again, to continue the metaphor that Doug Kelly uses, it's a highway where, where we prayer is sending up these, these semis, these freight liners, these 18 wheelers that are empty. And it's bringing them back down laden with all the gifts and the power through the merit of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit down back down to earth. Um, another duality that we see that's sort of in line with heaven and earth is in Revelation is the physical and the spiritual, and again, prayer um, connects the two. It's a spiritual exercise that um, that has very physical material. Prayer, spiritual doesn't mean unreal; it just means unseen. It has very real, very physical, very material effects. You see that in chapter eight. That's the guts of eight is these trumpets that are being blown. These these things; these real physical things are happening. Things are being burned up. Things are being destroyed. Judgments are being levied um, on people, on populaces, on the go- on governments uh, that are crumbling and, and and so forth. And I think that's a lot of the meaning behind the stars and stuff. That's Old Testament's rife with star imagery and luminary imagery. A lot of times, it's symbolic for for uh, potentates and powers, and state powers that rise and fall. And so. Um, things are being shaken and it's happening through prayer. And there are stories, I mean, so many stories, even, you know, Doug shares a few and I've heard, there are so many stories throughout history of saints praying and then things happening. And, you know, one of the ones that Doug shares is about the falling of the Berlin Wall and how much prayer went into that and so on and so forth. So um, prayer right now for Ukraine, essential. Prayer right now for revival in the West and in our country, even through the what's happening with Ukraine, essential. Um, and, and with the shaking of, of COVID, that COVID has brought around the globe. And with worldwide inflation and so on and so forth, prayer, prayer, prayer. Hey, let me plug it. We have prayer Monday night. Um, uh, I think it's yeah, MNP Monday night prayer at six thirty to eight over at Bunker Hill and I ten in those new office buildings. Come, come join us for that. It's, it's city wide. It's west West Houston focused, but it's for the city, folks. Just the saints from every stripe come and come and pray from six thirty to eight. We pray, we worship. And we're pulling heaven down. We're plundering heaven through the merits of Jesus Christ. Um, We believe that it moves history forward. We believe that history um, belongs to the intercessors. It is the work. It's not preparatory for the work. So um, that is that is it. I'm I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I want to say. And I I do not. Um, God bless you all. And keep praying.